This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Galatians 6, 1 through 10. This is on page 975 in your pew Bibles if you want to follow along. Galatians 6, 1 through 10. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. All right. I pray for us one more time. Jesus, now would you come and move in our hearts in ways that we hear your voice? Would you comfort us and correct us? reorient our hearts in ways that um, put us in alignment with your desire and will. There's a lot of burdens that we're carrying into the room, uh, and this passage says that you really care about those, and you have a desire to restore and to have those um, burdens borne by one another, but also by you primarily through what Christ has done. So we just pray like a strong understanding of what you've done, of who you are, of what you're like, And then would you speak to us, Holy Spirit, while we gather around your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, so there are um, a couple of stories that when you hear them, they they change you forever. So for me, about 14, 13 years ago, I heard this story that I think made me different. Um, It was a story about two men in their 60s. They'd been friends for a really long time. They're both like national Christian leaders. They're authors and speakers and their names that if I if I threw them out you would know their names but the story goes that they're together at some sort of conference or meeting or something and one of them sees the other one across the room his face lights up he all but runs towards him and kind of runs almost with this dance-like motion just so excited to see his friend they embrace for a moment and then the man who ran to his friend says oh I've so looked forward to seeing you I need to unburden myself And it just like radically changed my understanding. Here's this grown man sprinting like a child to another friend of his in a public arena where there's lots of folks who are watching them, no doubt. And the first thing out of his mouth is, I'm so happy I get to unburden myself. And I think to that point, I had always understood like confession and accountability more in terms of like what we shouldn't be doing that we made a mistake and did, and now we have to say that we're sorry. And it had more to do with like 
regret and maybe shame or maybe even fear of getting caught, maybe even like embarrassment, than it did like this joyful, hopeful excitement. What this man knew that I didn't understand yet was that the gospel of Jesus frees us. That, that what Christ came to do isn't to put more burdens on us, to make us like people that were more moral and therefore had more rules to follow. He came to set captives free, to, to liberate those that were in bondage, to open the eyes of the blind, to take what was broken and to mend it. And he uses confession, this unburdening ourselves, as a pathway towards freedom. It was like a, just a, maybe a simple story, but it changed me in a way that I think for so long my understanding of purity and repentance and holiness had way more to do with what we shouldn't be doing than with what we get to do, and way more to do with regret and fear than it did with like joy and freedom. I tell you that story because this morning we get a chance to use this passage to talk about the habit in a community of unburdening ourselves. And that's kind of a weird word. Uh, it's, I get that word from that story, to be quite honest. I've carried that word with me for 13 or 14 years, thinking about being in a community where my friendships and the people that I'm around have this joyful delight to unburden themselves. Not just confess, not just be accountable, not just hold each other's feet to the fire, but actually be free to be liberated to experience the grace of Jesus. So I've, I've carried this with me for a while. And so we've dreamed about community here. We've thought about how do we gather? What are the disciplines? What are the habits? What are the foundations? What's the essence of what we want to do? And so we started with the scriptures. We said, man, I have to hear God's voice first. But that has to be our grounding point. Not even freedom isn't even the grounding point, right? It has to be what God has said. And then prayer has to be a part of that, right? We're not just gathering to hear from each other. We have to hear from God and speak to God. And then this habit of unburdening ourselves, and then we'll end next week with this reminding of God's identity for us, like what Christ has done for us. So, so those letters conveniently spell spur, which if you're familiar with the scriptures in Hebrews 10, it says that we should spur one another on towards love and good deeds. I promise we didn't just use this unburdening because that word is really convenient. Like it actually has been in my soul for a long time. And what I want to do this morning is maybe surprise you or, or maybe just reinforce what you already know to be true. To say that God actually has your good in mind when he welcomes you into the light. He welcomes you into freedom. And the gospel of Jesus is one of freedom and liberation. But it starts in the darkness about our brokenness and our sin. And what's fascinating about us as Christians is there's this subtle temptation to move past the good news of the gospel onto things that we feel like are more mature, almost as if like we were to grow up and grow out of our need for Jesus. You have this self-conception of, of like who you should be, that the older you get, the longer you go out with Jesus. It's almost like you need Jesus less, like you'd be less of a mess. You'd be less uh, broken. You, you'd be less in a space where you needed grace and you'd have it, your act figured out. But, but it just can't be that. That can't be the name of the game. It has to always be a fresh understanding of what Christ has done because the scriptures would say our brokenness is so deep, we'll actually never get to the bottom of it in this life. You'll actually die, friends, with things in your heart that you didn't even know were wrong. Think about the way you look at history now and whole generations and communities and nations who did things that were just socially acceptable that now we look back and go, how could they? Well, they were blind to it. It was reinforced by their culture. No one challenged that. It was just the way things were, and it was absolutely wrong. And we would be really foolish to think that we won't go to our graves blind to some biases and some 
malformed practices and some, some misunderstandings of perspectives and values that we just inherited from our culture that Christ no doubt is redeeming, but we're not fully redeemed in this life. And so I say all that because the expectation for us is that we always get to unburden ourselves. We actually have a habit and an expectation that when we gather, the goal is to be honest about where we've been. And so for a while we've been saying, the question won't be, did you struggle this week? It will be, where did you struggle this week? As a way to set in the culture of like, hey, we expected that we needed Jesus this week, and we expect a need to rehearse the good news of the gospel this week. But there's something about us that's kind of a forgetful people. And actually, when you read the scriptures, what you see is there's lots of stories of people that hear the good news, they encounter God, they interact with him, and then they, they seem to forget. And we have story after story. I mean, can you think of a story of an Old Testament saint or a New Testament leader that didn't have some sort of struggle? Uh, the only one I could think of is Enoch, but you just have like one verse and then he like goes to heaven. That's, a, that's it. So if, you're, if your life is reduced down to like eight words, it probably doesn't have a whole lot of struggle in it either. But most of the stories we hear, they're these stories of really complicated mixtures of faith and longing and belief and then also unbelief and sin and struggle and kind of finding identity outside of who God is for us. This is the Christian narrative. And it's why the gospel is such good news, because Jesus came in to bear the consequences of all that for us to actually set us free. So, so if you're wondering what Christianity is about, it is not a better list of rules than any other world religion has. It's not clearer teaching that would make you more amazing. It's this fundamental message that you couldn't be amazing on your own. Your only hope was that God himself would step into your place, die in your place in a way that would actually forgive you and set you free. Jesus bore on the cross the penalty for all of your sin. And the scriptures say, by faith, if we trust him, you can be forgiven. Not not through reform, not through figuring things out, not through being amazing, but simply by putting your faith in him, are we transformed and changed? And I don't know if it's because maybe that seems too simple the longer we go. But what you see in out the scriptures is this struggle with early Christians to wrestle with that. So all the letters in uh, the New Testament really are written to Christian communities who are struggling to figure this out. And Galatians is no different, right? So the church in Galatia was struggling. Even if you look back in chapter 1, you don't even get very far to verse 6 already. Paul, as he's writing this letter to them, he says in verse 6, chapter 1, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. (laughs) He's six verses into like, hey, how are you? Greetings, everybody. What's going on? And he does that because it matches our heart. We get to chapter 3 and verse 1. He says this, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You have this temptation to trust and then quickly turn away, which is why this habit or this discipline or this perspective or this foundation in community of unburdening is so important because it means that we get a chance to reorient our hearts and lives around what is true. Even in the chapter right right before our reading in chapter five, if you're familiar with the Bible, you may have heard like the fruits of the spirit and the fruits of the flesh. There's even like kids songs that we would sing. But the fruit of the Spirit is not a coconut. The fruit of the Spirit is not a banana. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And right above that, he says, hey, and the fruit of the flesh is full of all kinds of darkness. It's sexual immorality. It's impurity. It's sensuality. It's idolatry. It's sorcery. It's enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of anger and rivalries and dissensions and division and envy and drunkenness and orgies. All of these things I'm warning you about, he says. And he's saying that to Christians, 
because they struggle with those fruits of the flesh like they long for the fruits of the Spirit. So, so the gospel message comes to very broken people who God heals and redeems, but they continue to struggle with their brokenness. And we get to, in community, kind of bring to each other an honest assessment of where we are, an honest longing and a trust that God will redeem. But oftentimes the way he redeems is through our unburdening. What this 60-year-old man knew was that part of his journey was being honest. Part of what took the power of sin away was, was being honest. Part of what actually helped him heal was putting what was broken into the light so that it could be transformed and changed. And so if you can imagine a Christian community where we gather together in a very homemade style week to week, we constantly remind each other of what God's Word says. We, we cry out to God in prayer like as a reflex. We just stop and go, man, I don't know. Let's pray about that. We expect to be honest, and we constantly talk about Jesus and what he's done for us. I think if we commit ourselves to those four things, regardless of what our small group structure looks like, we will be radically transformed and changed over time. So, so this idea of unburdening is where I want us to spend our time uh, this morning. And we'll use Galatians 6 to walk through it. I'm going to use two priorities and six perspectives. So that's eight things. That's a ton. So kids... If you can capture all of them and they don't rhyme or anything like that, I tried really hard, but I couldn't figure out a way to make them all rhyme with the same letter. So I'm going to cue them for you. But if you get all eight of them, we would love to reward you with our traditional fruit snacks. And this morning, we have a new fruit snack, Sherpa, who will pass them out. So Adam Whitmer in the back here in the gray shirt, there he is, kids. That's the one you want them all. He's going to meet you in the back door. So if you can grab all eight of these, Adam will give you some fruit snacks. All right, first Priority. First thing to think about, first thing this passage takes us to is the goal is to actually restore people. The goal of unburdening is actually to restore people. Look with me in verse 1. He says, brothers, and you see that footnote there? It takes you down to the bottom where it says brothers and sisters, right? It's, it's for everybody, brothers and sisters. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The first perspective or the first priority, the first thing that matters in this passage is that we should be a community that seeks to restore people in their brokenness. Not just expose them, not just highlight it, not remove them, but actually restore them. And he says it is for anyone who's caught in any transgression. This is broad and wide. So one of the things that's challenging about this message is when it comes to unburdening, sometimes that will be sin. But oftentimes it's just struggle. Sometimes it's just the brokenness of the world washing over you and splashing up on the windshield of your life that you now have to deal with. There's places where it's not necessarily starting in sin, although you might be tempted to sin in your response to the pain. He says there's this way that when anyone is caught in any sort of transgression, that we should actually restore them. And this word restore is a medical term in secular Greek. It's like what you would do to a bone that needs to be reset. So, so it has something to do with like mending and fixing. And think about how painful a broken bone is. To think about coming near to people in their brokenness, in their pain, and seeking to actually restore. The, the posture is to take people and not marginalize them, but to welcome them to be the kind of community that's healing and restorative that resets the bone of their heart so that they can be healed and move forward, right? And so he says, of course, this has to be done in a spirit of gentleness. 
And so if you were reading this as one letter, you would have heard the word gentle just a few verses before in chapter 5, verse 23. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. So I think it's like a a specific kind of focus for us, but maybe it's also reminding you of this whole bundle of postures to restore in love, to restore in patience, to restore in kindness and in joy and in faithfulness and in goodness and in self-control and, of course, in gentleness. And this would exclude what is so common in churches of things like envy and gossip and malice and slander. Think about the pain that's been caused or the legends you have of people you've heard of or your own story where honesty and openness was met with gossip. A confession of sin then turned into a rumor that was passed around the church and someone used a prayer time to actually undress somebody verbally. There's places where the church has not done well. We haven't actually moved towards gentleness. We've done things that are more like jealous and they have more enmity and anger and gossip behind them, right? So the church has to be a place that believes in their own brokenness enough that Christ is actually healing and redeeming that so that you know the gentleness that Christ has given you so that you share that with other people. And he says, hey, keep watch on your own heart, lest you too be tempted. Like, there's a a vulnerable spot in this, right? No one is arrogant in this space. All of us start at this spot of being broken and needing to be redeemed and transformed. So he says the first kind of priority is to restore people and to do that in gentleness. And then he says in verse 2, the second priority is to bear their burden. So we want to restore people and we want to bear their burden. So he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And I think these are kind of two sides of the same coin. One is reparative, right, when the bone is already broken to come alongside it. And the other one is proactive. When someone says, hey, I am dealing with something that feels crushing, I need help, before they're crushed, to actually come alongside of them and to bear their burden. So he says to bear one another's burdens, to be the kind of community that cares, that comes alongside of people, that actually moves towards their pain and asks that, that they would stand in the middle of it with them. And there's like a million kind of burdens. Like think through all the things that we face. I just made a quick, a quick list, right? There's definitely the burden from sin. There's the burden from our bodies breaking down. There's the burden from broken friendships, from, from the pain of enemies that have harmed us. There's burdens from like confusion and sadness and depression. There's burdens from the loss of loved ones, from, from emotional issues, job issues and the loss of a job that creates a new kind of issue. There's burdens with our extended families, burdens with our immediate families. There's anxiety for our future. There's shame or pain from our past. Marriage has a kind of burden. Singleness has a kind of burden. Moving towards college has a kind of burden. Graduating from college has a kind of burden. Being in school as a child has a kind of burden. There are church burdens. Oh yeah, and there's this thing called a pandemic that all of us are living in, right? There is no shortage of the kinds of burdens that we're called to bear. And you have this image in your mind of coming alongside of somebody. It's a heavy load. It's a big bag. It's something they can't bear themselves. And so you come alongside, and the Christian community gets to stand with people, gets to hold their arms, gets to hold it for a moment while they take a deep breath and ask for God's grace in that space. They get to actually move towards each other and to bear burdens. So those are the two Priorities. What's driving us to unburden ourselves is a desire to see people restored and the desire to actually carry in real time and in real life the burdens that they actually deal with. Those are the two practices or priorities. And then he's going to walk through this text, and I just want to organize it in terms of like six 
priorities or perspectives. I keep missing those words back and forth. Two priorities, six perspectives, eight, whatever you want. It doesn't really matter. There's actually so much in this text, like I don't even know how to organize it succinctly. So this is the best I could do. And eight points is not very succinct. And I'm leaving out a ton of stuff. Like in verse 6, it says that you should share financially with the one who teaches you. I'm not even going to mention that, although that's kind of dear to my heart. But that's an important, that's a whole nother sermon. We're not even going to, not even going to touch it. All right, so I'm messing up all these things in my mind. Here's six things, though, as far as priorities and perspectives. Six more. Let's just do that. There's eight priorities and perspectives because I can't keep it straight. Here's the next one. The third one is this, that we would always look to Jesus. So he says, restore one another in a spirit of gentleness, bear one another's burdens. And he says in verse 2, and so fulfill the law of Christ. To bear each other's burdens and to restore each other, he says, is what Christ actually came to do. It's to put our eyes on Jesus. So the third thing is to always look to Jesus. He is the one who bore our, our burdens in the first place so that when we confess, we're not just confessing into the air. We're confessing to a God who actually already atoned and paid for our sins. Therefore, I don't have to make you pay because Christ has already paid. We can actually move towards forgiveness and reconciliation as a community. So we look to what Jesus has already done for us. And he says the law of Christ is actually summed up in this. So Christ did it for us, and he tells us in his word that when we follow this second commandment to, to love one another as ourselves, we actually fulfill the law of Christ. So Romans 13, 8 says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. What's the law about? It's actually loving God and then loving others. This sums up the entire law. He says in verse 9, For the commandments, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet, or any other commandment. They're all summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So to move towards each other, to represent or reflect what Christ has done, would be to actually love each other in meaningful ways. The whole law is summed up in that. Am I loving this person? And it actually reflects what Christ has already done. So the Romans 15 says this, and we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. This is what he's talking about, to bear up those burdens. We have an obligation to do that, not to please ourselves. Let each of us, be, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. It may be an obscure reference there, but he's saying we have an obligation to bear burdens. And as we do that, we look to Jesus who did exactly that, who took all of the reproaches, all the condemnation, all the pain, all the brokenness that we deserved on himself, and he absorbed it so that we could be forgiven and free. So when we seek to restore people and when we bear their burdens, we are being like Jesus, and not in the sense that we're atoning for their sins, but we're reminding them of what Christ has done, and we're acting out the good news of what Christ has actually accomplished for us. So for us to be the kind of community that treasures what Jesus has done will make us the kind of community that dances across a room to unburden ourselves. To have just in the air all the time this freeing gospel that God himself died in our place, took the burden for our sin, and actually sets us free from the allure and the power of sin, that will make us a happy people. 
So he says, look to Jesus. And then fourthly, this just makes sense. It's logically connected. He's going to tell them to actually be humble. Because as we look to Jesus, we realize we're not looking to ourselves. As we look to Jesus, we realize we're not looking to our own performance to kind of secure an identity or to be amazing. We're we're recognizing that he is the one who died for us. And that actually then makes us humble. So look in verse 3. So so it's start with humility is the fourth one. So restore people, bear their burdens, look to Jesus, and then start with humility as you engage with people. He says this in verse 3, For if anyone thinks that he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. If you come arrogantly believing that you have something, you actually have nothing that could redeem, nothing that could heal, nothing in and of yourself that actually would change the situation. Christ has it all. If you come thinking that you're something, you actually are self-deceived. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be not on himself alone, but, but I'm sorry, then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Let me unpack that for a second. He's saying, be humble. Don't come thinking that you have it all together, right? This is a warning against arrogance, that uh, humility's opposite would be arrogance. If you think you have something when you have nothing, you deceive yourself. Don't take an arrogant posture with your brothers and sisters. It's about empathy and compassion. So he says, don't be arrogant. And the other kind of enemy of humility is comparison, which is what I think is going on in verse 4. But each one of you test his own work, right? Focus on what you're doing. And then his reason to boast will be in himself, not in his neighbor, which is a strange grammatical way to say, hey, when you think about kind of what's going on, you're not saying, well, I'm better than them or I'm worse than them, which ends in like pride or in shame. Stop and just own your own need for Jesus. Look at what's happening inside of you and don't compare yourself to your brothers and sisters. Because in a small group to say, I would never do that. Man, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they had the audacity to go down that road. He actually says, no, no, you, you should understand that you yourselves are capable of all kinds of sin. Go back up to verse 1 there. He says at the end of that verse, keep watch over yourself lest you too be tempted. There's a call for Christians to be humble, realizing all of us are weak, all of us are broken, all of us are susceptible to a certain number of lies and a package of temptations that actually could come towards us that promise to heal wounds illegitimately, that promise to take away the pain, that promise to actually justify us. And so he says, if you're arrogant or if you compare yourself to somebody else, then you won't actually be humble enough to move towards people. So, so keep watch over yourself. We're all in this together. We all come as broken people who need to unburden ourselves. Right? The question is not even just like, where have you struggled, but where have we struggled? Like the humility in a group is all of us come, leader included, needing grace. So, so my wife was out of town two weeks ago, and I texted three friends and just said, hey, my wife's going to be out of town for a couple nights. I feel pretty strong and stable, but would you pray for me? Like, would you pray that I keep my eyes pure? Would you keep, I keep my heart in a good spot, right? So I'm, I'm just outing myself early to say, I'm going to be in a vulnerable place. Would you please pray for me? And that's basically, I just understand my susceptibility to temptation, right? And part of the taking the power away of that is to humbly ask for help and to realize, man, I need somebody to come alongside. So I ask these guys to bear this burden with me. Ask these guys to help me look to Jesus and from a humble posture actually release some of the power of besetting sin in my life. Right? To start with humility is huge. All right, so number three, if you're doing six perspectives, number five, if you've made this all one big lump, it is to own our own responsibility. 
So he's giving perspective here, right? So we want to bear each other's burdens. We want to help restore people. Look to Jesus. Start with humility. But he says in verse 5, you have a responsibility, right? To own your personal responsibility. Look in verse 5. For each one of you will have to bear his own load. Okay, now this is not a contradiction to what he says in verse 2. The word is a little bit different here. The burden in verse 2 is this overwhelming, crushing weight. In verse 5, it has more to do with like a backpack or something that you're carrying. So he's saying everyone is personally responsible for themselves, which is really interesting. So what this means now is that we come into community and we say we need each other and nobody is responsible for me except for me, which now makes me responsible and you able to come alongside of me. This is in contrast to the times where I've been with people and they've like blown it, Moses just say, with, with pornography. And in the middle of their confession, they'll have this part where they just bash their friends who didn't hold them accountable enough, didn't call them often enough, didn't actually seek them out enough. And they'll blame their friends for not being very good accountability partners as a reason why they've blown it. And it's really important at the moment to go, oh, no, man, hey, this is on you. Like, there's no transformation without personal responsibility, right? Everyone has to bear his own load. So what this means is we are not passive in our Christian community. So, so whatever you're dealing with, right, you have to stop and go, man, where's the part that I play? And it's not a contradiction to grace. It's not a contradiction to being dependent. It's not a contradiction to recognizing that we all have needs. It's just reality. You will not change if you don't acknowledge your own brokenness and your need for a Savior and guard your own heart. Everyone has to bear his own load. So in these perspectives of community, how do we unburden? How do we walk this thing out? There's this call to own your own responsibility, right? Empathy and compassion for sure, but also initiative, right? Just write this down. There is no transformation without personal responsibility. Even your own need to go to Jesus, right? Your own need to cry out to him is super, super important. So, so that's the fifth one or the third one, depending on how you're counting. The next one we'll say is this. Remember the law of the harvest. Look with me in verse 7. So he says, don't be deceived. Here's that word again. He says, hey, if you, if you think you're something when you're nothing, you deceive yourself. He says that earlier in verse 3. Now he says again, don't be deceived. God is not mocked, which has this idea of like you can't thumb your nose to God, which even says, like, you, you think you're smarter than God, no God can outwit God. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh from that flesh will reap corruption, and the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So he goes back to this organic illustration that he used in chapter 5 of the fruits of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit, right? And we, we talked on Wednesday night in the soul care class. We had these two options, almost like two bags of seed, one of the flesh and one of the Spirit. And every interaction we have, we've got these choices, right? Am I going to act in kind of self-preservation, building my own identity from the flesh? Or am I going to operate from the Spirit, which trusts that God has actually made me whole? He has my future. He knows what I need. This one causes me to protect through envy and strife, anger, resentment, soothe through sexual morality. This one causes me to be patient and kind and gentle and loving, believing Christ has already secured my future and my hope and my forgiveness, right? So if seeds of the flesh and seeds of the spirit, right? Even just to conceptualize the choices that I'm making in that moment. So what he's saying now in this moment, hey, when it comes to unburdening, remember the law of the harvest. What you sow that you will reap. 
And if you, throughout the week, are sowing to the flesh, guess what? Those seeds actually take root in your life, and they bear a kind of fruit. And if you sow to the Spirit, those seeds actually take root and bear a kind of fruit as well. So this is like a warning. He's saying, hey, remember the law of the harvest? There's a warning here. He starts that way. God is not mocked. Don't think you're getting away with things because you haven't got caught yet. And in fact, actually, the things that we do, the more crafty we get, the more self-assured we are, the more dangerous it gets because we begin to believe that we have beaten the system and we won't get caught. We found ways around all the situations, right? He says, hey, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. All of those seeds are in the ground and they will take root. That's just the way it works. Now, the great news is in God's grace and redemption through forgiveness and repentance, you can actually uproot some of those things, but they don't just disappear. It's actually in unburdening and confessing that we uproot the things of the flesh. But he's saying as a warning, hey, remember the law of the harvest, friends. When you gather on Wednesday night at 630 in your small group, what you're doing is taking stock of the harvest and going, man, where did I sow to this week? Oh, oh gosh, let me unburden myself that I in this moment was afraid and therefore I lied in my business meeting. I was in a space where I felt overwhelmed and I needed comfort and so I self-soothed in ways that were illegitimate. And the goal is to catch those things in seed form so they don't take root down deep and are harder to uproot. So you maybe have these in your backyard like I do. There's weeds that maybe you thought they were a plant and then you realize, nope, that's a weed. But it's been going on for a super long time. And you try to just pull it from the top and it just pops right off the top, but the roots don't, nothing happens, right? So what's going to happen like almost like, like tomorrow, the thing is back again, which is fantastic and terrifying. And you go, and it just keeps going down deeper and deeper and deeper, right? So, so you can pull off the consequences maybe, but those roots until you deal with what's driving them actually go deeper and deeper and deeper. And here's the deal with sin. It is reverse photosynthesis. Biology, like eighth grade. Give me a break here. I think, though, photosynthesis, right, is like the sun makes stuff grow. Is that photosynthesis? Okay, so being in the light is how good things grow. Here's the deal with sin. It's reverse photosynthesis. Stuff actually grows in the darkness. It's in the dark that those things mutate and take form, and they take root, and they grow. So part of gathering to unburden ourselves is to shine the light of God's grace on the things of our lives so that searing light of Christ's forgiveness can actually do work on the exposing nature of the sin in my life. It could actually bring into the light these things that have been hidden. And in the shadows, they make sense. I can talk myself into them. There's like a logic to sin. It's not a complete logic, but but there is a logic, right? If I soothe, I do feel better. If I get angry, I do feel strong. If I avoid, I don't have to deal with this, right? There is a logic to those things. They just plant seeds in your heart that are going to bear really dangerous fruit down the road. So Paul writes to these early Christians and says, hey, 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 you're not getting away with anything. And it's not just a threat. It's also a positive affirmation. Like, what are you so even to the Spirit? Those things are going to bear fruit. And so to be the kind of community that's asking, hey, man, where do we struggle this week to sow into the flesh, can we actually bring those things into the light? So, so remembering the law of the harvest, that is number six or number four, depending on how you're counting. All right, number five or number seven, he says this, hey, beware of weariness. After this law of the harvest, and let me just say one more thing about that. He says, actually, it doesn't just grow, it gets worse. Look in verse eight, he says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from that flesh reap corruption. 
And the one who sows to the Spirit will from that Spirit reap eternal life. So it starts as flesh and it grows to corruption. It starts as the Spirit and it grows to eternal life. Sin never stays put is the warning. It never stops where you want it to. It takes root in your heart and life and it will grow. And this word corruption is the word of like a body decaying in the grave. It's speaking of death. So what you thought was just an unhelpful response in the moment left unchecked actually grows in places that get really, really, really dangerous. And the things of the Spirit, man, you give them time with the light of Christ to shine on those. They reap actual eternal life. It's about reward, and there's a warning in that space. And to be the kind of community that welcomes what the week was like and lets the searing light of Christ shine upon those, that is a healthy, helpful, redemptive community where we do some weed pulling together on our small group nights or over coffee or with husbands and wives or with our children, right? It's not just a small group thing we're saying. These are habits that Christians do. So you don't have to be in a small group actually being God's word or to pray or to unburden or to remind of gospel's identity. You don't have to be in an organized setting for that to happen. This is a posture for people who are trying to work out their redemption to, to understand. But there's a warning there. It doesn't just stay put. Okay, and because it doesn't stay put, it actually gets really hard. So look in verse 9. This next point here is to be aware of weariness. It says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So you just stop and go, why does he say that? Well, he says that because it's a strong temptation. Because there is a, a kind of ease to the logic of sin. It is way easier just to avoid or to soothe or to lash out. Or in community, just to avoid. Friends, loving each other well, speaking the truth in love, saying to people what they need to hear that they don't want to hear is exhausting. It's actually overwhelming. It actually burns you out. It costs you a whole lot to speak the truth to people who may not want to hear it in those spaces. And so he says, hey, don't grow weary in doing good. If that's you fighting for your own holiness, fighting to actually let go of this sin, fighting to keep bringing it into the light and you're exhausted because it keeps happening Don't grow weary in doing good. For in due season, you will reap. Gosh, pulling weeds is exhausting. But keep keep going because you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. For those who are in community and you're walking alongside of people that just seem to be hell-bent on self-destruction, don't grow weary in walking alongside of them because you are doing a kind of good. And if you keep moving towards them, and of course there's boundaries and there's limits, of course, but this posture of saying, I will sacrifice my own strength and my own like energy to move towards you, it really does grow my heart weary. So hey, don't, don't grow weary in doing good for your brothers and sisters, walking alongside of them, bearing their burdens and seeking to restore them. Don't grow weary there because in due season, you as a community will reap if you don't give up. There's a, a caution against weariness and we just stop and go, and I'm actually more tired. And then when I'm tired, I'm overwhelmed. And when I'm overwhelmed, I'm more susceptible to sin and brokenness, right? There's a warning there to be aware of the weariness, which I think is also why it says earlier on, hey, keep watch of yourself. Because doing this kind of redemptive relationship is actually difficult, right? So I leave meetings with people having confessed things, and I will have to bring my heart to somebody else. I go, man, I was just in this really hard meeting. All kinds of images or thoughts or concerns. I'm struggling with arrogance. or I'm struggling with, with fear. I'm struggling with my own issues of purity. I'm struggling with all kinds of things. Would you, would you help me? Would you come along 
side of me, right? To be mindful that there's a weariness to being on the front line of transformation in people's lives. And oh, is it worth it? Man, is it worth it to stand with people and watch God transform their hearts and lives? But there is a kind of weariness and there's a temptation in the community to take the easy way out and just let people burn themselves down. Let them fade to black. And you know their marriage isn't great, but you never say anything. You just let it kind of keep moving. And eventually they'll just stop showing up and coming and we'll move on. And there's a kind of courage and an energy and a weariness that moves towards that person and asks God to actually heal and help. So, so beware of weariness. And then last, either six or eight, whichever one you got, in verse 10, he says to prioritize redemptive community. So he says in verse 10, so then, which grammatically is all right. In light of all this stuff, here's the conclusion. Here's the result. Here's the application. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. In light of this call to restore, in light of this call to bear burdens, in light of this call to look to Jesus, in light of this call to humility, in light of this idea of owning your personal responsibility, in light of the warning of the law of the harvest, in light of this warning about weariness, would you actually make a priority the household of faith and those redemptive relationships, right? It's a space where you need to grow. They need you in the body. And to make that a priority actually sets those relationships in a space where God can use them in your life to help you and where he can use you in someone else's life to help them. And we're strung out all over the place with all kinds of relationships. This is a call to not insular um, kind of strange commune type postures, but commitments to our brothers and sisters to say, I'm going to make my relationship with you a priority. So, so then do good to everybody, but especially to those who are in the household of faith. Prioritize those redemptive relationships, right? So we've said, hey, there's two kinds of small groups or ways to get into small groups. There's those who didn't have existing relationships who were forming new friendships those have signed up, they're off and running. But there's also another group that's like, you have existing relationships, you already know people, just circle up with those folks and start to be intentional. That's our hope is that you would just be in relationship. And it doesn't matter to me necessarily if they're all part of our church or not. What matters to me is that you're in these kinds of relationships that can speak the truth of the gospel and can walk closely with each other in ways that actually see redemption take place. Right, so there's perspectives and longings, and there's a ton more about our community that we dream about. But I think if we can commit ourselves to these things and hear at the value level, kind of the perspective of the scriptures, it'll begin to change us over time. And you've just got one maybe warning. I don't know what you're thinking about right now. Let me just give you one caution, and then we'll take communion. We're going to talk next week about reminding each other of a gospel identity. Because everything I've just said is actually a threat to your reputation if the game is prove yourself to be strong, show that you're worthy of love, prove that you are amazing and that you're growing, prove that you deserve to belong, if you're trying to build an identity and a reputation for yourself, everything I've just said is a massive threat to that paradigm. Your reputation is diminished in this understanding. But your identity, which is very different than your reputation, is secured in Jesus and can actually flourish in community as you get to live into who God actually says you are. Your reputation and what people think about you is under threat. Your identity, what is actually true about you, is secure in Jesus. And I would just um, 
ask you to consider where you feel some resistance, is that more about your reputation or about living into your identity? If what I'm saying, if you're going like, heck no, man, I'm never going to do that. That's crazy. Is that about your reputation? Like, would you rather be known as a certain kind of person or actually be that kind of person? What Christ offers you is a secure identity, not through your behavior or your performance, but through what he has already done for you on the cross. So because he's already taken our burdens and borne the penalty for them, even before you were born and lived, he already died for those. So secure is your forgiveness and redemption. It's historic. By faith you trust him, he forgives you and gives you this adoption as a daughter and a son of God and secures you in that space And now you can actually work out your struggles, work out your burdens, work out your need to be restored in community with no threat to your identity because Christ has already secured that, which is why we take communion every week. We take communion every week to rehearse this idea of what Christ has done for us. That is always the starting place, and it's also the finishing place. We don't just start with a need for Jesus and then move on to kind of figuring it out on our own. We start with a need for Jesus, and we end with our need for Jesus, being more beautiful to us, more available to us, more understood by us so that we dance across the room faster to say, oh, I haven't been living according to my identity. I'd love to unburden and take off those clothes of the flesh and put on the things of the Spirit. Would you stand with me in that space? That's what Christ offers us. So, so we'll take communion first. The way we do it here is we have these little cups. If you missed them, or some at this front table and some in the back. The little wafer in there represents the broken body of Jesus. The little juice represents his shed blood. And it's a reminder that my identity is secure, and therefore what you think about me isn't a threat to who I really am. And now I can actually process where I'm at, what I need, in ways that are real. But would you first do that with Jesus? Bring to Jesus your burdens as you taste the cracker and you taste the juice, would you just remind yourself of where you need him, unburden yourself to him, thank him for what he's done, and then we'll sing it together. And then let that space actually spill over to the rest of your relationships is the logic of that. So let me just pray. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thanks for what you've done. Would you help us now as we engage together, remembering what you've done for a secure identity for us. We say thank you for who you are. Thanks for how solid it is. And we thank you that we get to remember Would you fill the room now with joy and with hope and with faith? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.